Father, we are thankful that we can come and worship the Lord, uh, that we can come and we can sing and we can proclaim uh, to you about your goodness. Uh, we're thankful for how you have worked in our lives. We're thankful for how you're continuing to work in our lives. And Father, we pray that today we will uh, listen with expectant hearts. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our house, just like many of you, we have a medicine cabinet. Okay? Most of us have one. And they help us get through the craziness of life. Right? Now in college, my medicine cabinet consisted of like toilet paper and duct tape and the occasional Tylenol. Uh, but now with small kids, it rivals that of like a CVS. You know, we've got a full-on pharmacy out of our, out of our house. And we have learned uh, that Band-Aids almost cure everything, right? And so it's, it's a lot of fun. But one of the things that we have learned out of the Psalms, which is where we are today, you know, a lot of the psalmists, you know, they, they have Christian writers, they've said that the Psalms are the soul's medicine chest. They help us get through all that life throws at us. They cover hope and happiness. They, they cover deceitfulness and disappointment, sin and sadness, fear and, and failure and sorrow and joy. One, one commentator said it like this. He said, there's, there's not as much, they're not as much a liturgical library, but rather a hospitable cabin, the Psalms. It's not a cabin that you're afraid to like sit down in, but it's a cabin that you're excited to be in. You know that this cabin that we're in in the Psalms is like a very well-lived cabin. Uh, you know, you, they kind of they've left their imprint. You kind of see what they've done around the around the house, around the cabinet. And when you come into someone's house, for example, when you come into our house, you learn a few things, right? Uh, you'll learn that my wife is an artist. She's got her paintings around our house. She's got a little studio. As soon as you walk in the door, um, you'll learn that our kids love to play outside, just from the, the fingerprints all over the the, the door there. Um, and then if you sit down and you have a cup of coffee with us, you'll learn about some of the places that we've been. All of our cups, our coffee cups, since we've been married, they tell a story. You know, they kind of tell a story of what we've done, and so it's something fun for us to kind of remember on. And this happens when we read the Psalms. We're observing the realities of life, right? We're, we're observing the, both the good and the bad, and that's, that's where we're in. This week we're in Psalm 32. In this Psalm, it talks about happiness, Okay? What makes us happy? Now the psalm, it starts with using this phrase, blessed. But it, but it can be interchanged with the word happy, or translated as the, word, as the phrase happy. And we think of happiness, you know, this is, happiness is something that the general public just generally desires. Uh, it's part of being human, is to desire happiness. But there's something funny in the Christian world uh, that I, I want to talk about. Because, you know, and this, this has really just kind of happened over the past 30 years. We've started to distinguish between both joy and happiness. We started to distinguish, you know, we've got this difference, but if, I, if, if I'm honest, you know, I've done this too. And it's often said like this. It says, happiness is what the world is after, but joy is what we're searching for. Or, you know, I've heard, I've heard, in some, I've heard some say, God doesn't care if we're happy, but he can give us joy. You know, we, we hear these types of things. And, and, well, you know, this is fun and it's cute and it's, it, it seems you know, pretty philosophical, but it's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible uses happiness and joy interchangeably. Over a hundred times in the Bible, you see both happiness and joy used in the same, in the same verse together. For example, Jeremiah 31, uh, 31, 13, it says, I will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. 
Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, he said, blessed is the poor in spirit. Every single time you see that, just like here in the psalm, he said, blessed. That means happy. It's translated as happy are the poor in spirit. So what we can learn is that God wants us to be both happy and joyful. But here's the thing, right? One of the, the distinction about joy and happiness that we've made, it's a good distinction. It's, it's, getting, it's getting at the right idea. But the, the words... It's, the difference is not in the words or the emotion, right? Joy and happiness kind of go hand in hand. The difference is in the source, okay? What causes happiness and joy? When, when my kids laugh at me and when my kids smile at me, I'm, I'm in a, I mean, I experience happiness and joy. When I go on a date with Kelly, we, can exp- we almost always have fun together, and we experience both happiness and joy. They're good and they're honorable things. But God, God wants us to find both of these, both happiness and joy. God wants us to find the blessed life, so to speak. So people all over the world, they're searching, the, searching for this, and, and in a lot of ways, they're, they're finding it. They're finding both happiness and joy. I mean, we're two hours away from what people would call the happiest place on earth, Disney World, right? This is interesting. This year's World Happiness Report, every single year over the past several years, there's been a happiness report that's come out. Very interesting. Denmark is known as the happiest place on earth. Now, come to find out, the United States is ranked 18th. Interesting. In this report, uh, the happiness levels, they've got ways of measuring happiness levels of every country consistently, to consistently measure the happiness levels. The report um, it's actually found that the world's happiness level, from a sociological perspective, is on the decline. past seven years, it's gone down every year. Fun fact. But there are, there are a few factors that sociologists have used to figure out what makes us happy. Like genetics, perhaps, or marriage, or desiring less, or, or having good health, or earning more money, or growing old gracefully. Uh, I thought this was funny. Being okay that we're, we're not a genius, right? Well, I can be happy now. Some have said religion, but nobody has said what the psalmist has said in Psalm 32. What, what the psalmist has said here. It goes completely against the grain of what the world would say. You see, external circumstances are certainly, can certainly cause the emotion of happiness and joy. But for us to say that we, they don't really happen, these don't cause happiness and joy or external, or external circumstances, is foolish, I think, because there's no doubt about it. Like I've already said, my kids, when they go to the happiest place on earth in Disney World, they can certainly experience happiness and joy at Disney World. When someone gets a raise, they're innately happy. There's a sense of joy that comes up. But here's the problem. We all know, we all know at some point sin spoils it. Something spoils it. Disney World, right, it gets crowded and it gets hot. The kids' ice cream, it starts to melt. It gets really expensive. It gets really crowded. That raise that we get, that we get really excited about, it's like, oh, well, maybe I can, I can go on a vacation. Or maybe I, can, <laughs> maybe I can afford to go out to eat every now and then. But then the AC unit breaks, or like our, something with our car, just we have to get this major car repair, and it's like, well, what am I going to do now? That raise that was just making me happy, I'm not so happy anymore, right? But we, we all know this is part of life, because sin, it can really mess up our happiness. It can spoil our happiness, so to speak. But what makes the, the Christian life different, and what we'll see today, is that we always have a reason to rejoice, we have a never-ending source of happiness. 
is always constant, never changing, and can't be spoiled by sin. When our circumstances around us ebb and flow, our source of happiness never changes. Because the sin that we experience, the sin that spoils, it spoils our happiness that, we, that we're talking about. You know, I'm, I'm a cereal guy, okay? Love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Nothing better than a good old bowl of Cinnamon Toast Crunch right before I go to bed. It really packs on the fat. You know, it's really good. Lucky Charms, awesome. But nothing's worse than bad milk, right? It's just really bad. And sin does to happiness what spoiled milk does to Lucky Charms. It messes up the entire bowl, okay? What we'll see today is that there's only one source of happiness and joy that can't be spoiled by sin. And in fact, as followers of Christ, like we said, we have a source of happiness that can't be defeated. And in fact, it's defeated sin. What we'll see in Psalm 32 is that our source of happiness is directly related to our standing before God. And you'll see on the screen here, Psalm 32 shows us, this is our big idea here, that the ultimate happiness is found in the forgiveness of sin. Okay? The ultimate, Psalm 32 shows us that the ultimate happiness is found in the forgiveness of sin. And today I'm going I'm to give a little bit of a running commentary like we've done the past several weeks. And it's going to be structured around four points. And they're all going to be up on the screen. Um, but we're going to walk through this text. And starting in verses 1 and 2, follow along with me. First two verses in Psalm 32. It says, Blessed, or happy, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, how are we happy, according to the psalmist? He just gets right to the point. He jumps right to the point. In verse 1, he says, we're happy when our sin is forgiven, when our sin is covered. He says the same thing, but in in, in a different way. He says it in verse 2. He says, we can be happy when we are forgiven by God, but when, when God doesn't essentially count our sin against us. That's what he shows us in verse 2. Typically, when we talk about sin, happiness isn't really in the same conversation. Right? We like to avoid it. But sin can give this, often give us this misconception of happiness. It can, it can feel good for a while, but it spoils. It, it will eventually spoil. It always leaves us empty. You see, David knows there's something sweet and special about being specifically in God's presence. He knows that. Something that far exceeds, being, being in God's presence far exceeds any sort of temporary hap- happiness that we could ever found on earth. David has experienced this ultimate source of happiness that's found in God's presence because in, in God's presence, at the very deepest level, he knows that this is what I was created for. We were created for this. There's no doubt There's no fear. There's no shame. Because being in God's presence is exactly why we were put on this earth. We were put on this earth to worship the Lord. And David very well knows that sin, that idea of sin, it spoils our joy and our happiness. It spoils everything. And David knows that God and sin, they just don't go together. And we all know this. Right? We, we know that God and sin, we experience doubt and fear and shame and unbelief and anger that steal our joy and happiness. So David says, he says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Right? Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You're blessed, you're happy because your sin is covered. Because our sin is forgiven and you can be in the presence of God. Which brings us to our first point. Being with God is our ultimate source of happiness. 
There are some other sources of happiness, but like we've already said, they all spoil. They all fall short. But God cannot be spoiled by sin. He never fails, He's never changing, and God never falls short. Ever. But there's a problem. If God is our source of happiness, this brings us to our second point pretty quick here. Our sin nature causes us to reject the source. I think there's two very specific things here in Psalm 32 that David's getting at, that we can, that he's pointing to that keep us from our source of happiness, that can hold us back, essentially, from being in God's presence. In the second half of verse 2, he said, blessed is, the, blessed is the man, and this is what he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this is interesting. He's saying, a person can be blessed, or a person can be happy if they're honest. There's, if there's a sense of sincerity, but... He's essentially saying that deceit and happiness, they can't sleep in the same bed. They don't go together. Now, if we keep reading, we see that this, this honesty and sincerity, it's clearly directed at a specific idea or something specific. And we'll see that in verses 3 to 5. Look what it says in verses 3 to 5. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. The honesty that David is talking about is is tied directly to being honest about our sin. It's tied directly to the idea of confessing our sin. David knows that in order to... (laughs) that in order to be forgiven of his sin, in order to be in God's presence, to find this idea of ultimate joy and happiness, he knows that his, his sins need to be covered. In order, to find his, in order for his, his sins to be covered, he knows that he has to confess his sins. And listen, a lot of people think that David wrote specifically this psalm, Psalm 32, right after his incident with David and Bathsheba. Right after the, the king of, one of the king, David, a king, he had an affair. He killed a man, and then he killed a man to cover it up. And this is a man that God chose to lead his people, to lead God's people. And he, he had fallen off, essentially fallen off the deep end. He was in a sense of despair. And, and it is estimated, some have estimated, this psalm possibly came about a year after his incident. And he, had not, he, had, he still had not confessed his sin. And, and in verse 3, he says, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away. He felt like God's hand, specifically his hand, was heavy upon him. God was convicting him. Right, when you think of like the hand of someone who's just like, you just you felt a weight, so to speak, a weight from God kind of hovering over him, convicting him of his sin. And David said later in verse 4, he says, his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Like he was physically Physically, he was physically in trouble. His, his body was hurting. He was grieving. He was, his, his, physically, he was feeling the effects of his sin. You see, David was in anguish over his sin. His, he had a burden over what he had done. He was, covering up, he was trying to cover up his sin. He was trying to keep his sin in the dark. He didn't want to admit what God had done, although he, he knew that God knew what he had done, but he didn't want to admit it. Now, now here's the problem, okay? David's heart was filled with pride. And if... He wasn't being honest about his sin. He was, he was trying to take care of the sin himself, almost. You see, pride hardens us to our ultimate source of happiness. 
Pride hardens us to our ultimate source of happiness. Pride was keeping David from experiencing the presence of God. You know, this is, this is really serious because we have an enemy. He loves pride. Right? When, we're, when we're prideful, when we're always right, a prideful heart tries to cover up sin. A prideful heart tries to ignore our own sin. And I, and I really believe that a prideful heart is one of the most dangerous sins. In fact, I, most, most sins tend to find their root in some sort of pride. You know, often, oftentimes Christians in the world, we can kind of turn our nose up to, to specific sins. Sins that don't necessarily give an outward appearance of godliness. Um, and hear me on this, we need to fight for these things. Right? We, all need, we want to grieve these things, we want to fight these things. Sin is real, it affects our entire life. But pride, specifically, is one of those things that our enemy loves because it's subtle. Pride is, it, it creeps into our life. Pride, pride is often hard to notice, and it can destroy. Right? Pride can destroy because pride causes us not to be honest with our sin. Pride causes us to try and cover up our sin, to ignore it. We can say it this way. A prideful heart tries to cover their own sin, but a humble heart submits to Christ as the only sufficient covering for sin. You see, David knew that sin must be covered. He knew it. It had to be covered. Sin has to be forgiven. Sin must be forgiven. It had to be dealt with. It had, sin had, he had to be cleansed from his sin. And we know this because he said, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. As Christians, we know and we trust that Jesus took our sin. At the cross, Jesus covered us of our sin. The covering of Christ at the cross is sufficient. Right? We, can, we can believe that. We can believe that the, cro- that the cross was sufficient to cover us of our sin. And it's eternal and it's forever. But we know, but yet we still try to hide it. Or we ignore it. Or we try to cover it up. And I'll, I'll say it this way. Either we can try to cover up sin by ourselves, or we can trust that Christ covered it up at the cross. Either we can try to cover up sin by ourselves, or we can trust that Christ covered it at the cross. Because I can be honest with you, do you know why I think we often live a hidden life? Why we try to cover up our own sin? Um, and, I, and I found this to be true with myself, okay? You know, we're, we're ultimate, we're usually not fearful of God, we're usually fearful of man. And you see, fear of man hides us from our ultimate source of happiness. Fear of man hides us from our ultimate source of happiness. When we try to cover our sin, when we hide it, we're essentially, when we try to hide our sin, we're essentially slapping God in the face. And I think it's for two reasons. We're essentially saying, the first, the first reason I think when we try to hide our sin and cover up our sin is we're essentially saying we don't believe that our sin was truly forgiven. That, that the cross is insufficient when we're not believing that our sin was forgiven at the cross, and I'll say it this way, when we live a hidden life, we're not trusting in the sufficiency of the cross. If we truly believed that our sin was forgiven, we would rejoice in the freedom of the cross, not in the burden of our sin. The cross is sufficient, listen to this, the cross is sufficient to lift the burden of our sin. And that should cause us to rejoice. Right? We can believe that. Well, the second reason, and I think this is probably one of the more common reasons, is that we care more about what man thinks than what God thinks. 
And this is, this is probably true of what happened with David. Scholars have said it probably took David, like I said, a year before he confessed his, she, his, his sin of, with Bathsheba to Nathan the prophet. Okay? David was a king. You know, he had a lot to lose. He was essentially over God's people. I mean, what, just what would happen if, if people found out of what happened about the sin? Like, what would happen? And, and, we, and we do the same thing, right? If, if we've done something wrong, if we've sinned against a brother or a sister or we've sinned against God, in our, in our pride we try to cover it up, but we don't want anybody to know. But, but this is funny because it's not funny, but it's funny because we do this. It's like we know that God knows, but this is our little secret between me and God. You know, like God knows, but I don't want anybody else to know. That's just evidence that we are fearing man more than we're fearing God. We, that's not how it works. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It, it, should, it should cause us to hate and run from our sin. In God's kindness, God made confessing sin to one another as a means of blessing. Just, just get that. Confessing sin to each other is a means of blessing and healing. James 5.16 it says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confessing sin is for our good. When, and I'll say this. When we confess our sin to one another, we're outwardly, we're outwardly trusting and believing that God's work on the cross was enough. We are saying to the world, that Christ is enough. That Christ is sufficient. Listen, if someone confesses sin to us, we should be encouraged by them. Their belief, their trust, and their humility. It should spur us on. Confessing sin is a, is a proclamation that Christ is supreme. Confessing sin is a proclamation that Christ is supreme. But do you know what often happens? When someone confesses their sin, they often experience a sense of shame. A few weeks ago, my my oldest daughter, um, we were trying to get ready to church. We we're trying to get rushed out, trying to get, trying to make it on time, not be late. You know, I'm, I probably should be on time to this stuff, you know. Um, and she goes up to this little closet, or it's like a little dresser. It's a small dresser. And she's like kind of hiding in this thing. And I'm like, Addie, Addie, what are you doing? I'm like, we got to go. Get in the car. We got to go. And I look up, and she's got play makeup all over her face that my sister-in-law had given her a, f- a, f- a few weeks prior. Um, it had it all over her face. And I'm like, Addie, wipe it off now. We've got to go. I just crushed her spirit. And in that moment, what she wanted to hear was, I'm beautiful. Right? She didn't think she was doing anything wrong, but I crushed her. I shamed her, so to speak. Now, in that moment, what she's doing, what she thought, she thought she was right, and she wanted to look at me, she wanted me to look at her and tell her she was beautiful, but I shamed her. But what she was doing, it wasn't right. Like she need, we needed to be leaving, right? She didn't need to be putting, she didn't need to be playing. But the way I handled it, it wasn't right either. I, I, I crushed her spirit. I should have looked at her and smiled at her and, ex- and, and, and gently explained to her, after I told her that she was beautiful and that I loved her, I needed to explain to her why 
we, we, should, we needed to take, take your makeup off so we can get to church. I should have done it in a kind way. But this is often what happens when we confess our sin to one another. Like, people, people come to us, or they don't realize what they're doing, and we can shame them. We can crush their spirit. Either knowingly or unknowingly. And, and hearts drop, right? It takes great courage to confess sin. It takes great, great courage. And so let's, let's pray that we would be a people that encourage that when we confess sin to one another, let's pray that New City Church would be a place where sin can graciously come to light so that the power of Christ can transform lives. Amen. Let's, let's pray that the power of Christ would transform lives as people are confessing to Christ, confessing to sin to one another. What's, what's, what's interesting about David's confession to Nathan was that David didn't go to Nathan. Nathan went to David. Actually, God sent Nathan to David. David was grieving over his sin, and he said his bones were wasting away. But God, in his kindness, sent David a friend. Someone to help him relieve the burden. And God, in his kindness, right, sent to us, Jesus, to eternally lift the burden from, so that we could be relieved from the burden of our sin, to be, so our sin could be covered. He took the burden. May we live knowing that our burden has been lifted. Let's keep going. Look at, look at the next few verses in Psalm 32. And this is what, the next point, it says, this is what we're going to get to. It says, God sent Jesus to, this is, this is not what the, this is my point. It says, God sent Jesus to save us and to shepherd us. Now, when we were overseas, uh, we, were, we had to have this driver to drive us to and from school because the, the driving was just crazy. I mean, I felt like I was going to die every day. I mean, literally every day we were playing chicken with people on the road. And it was pitch black in the morning, snow and ice everywhere. I, I squealed almost every morning. I didn't need coffee, right? We... The adrenaline was, was my, my, my adrenaline was rushing by the time we got there. So, but anyways, we had to have a driver to get us to and from school. And we were searching for a driver. I, I remember this specifically. There was, there was a chance that we would have a driver, and they said that he was a shepherd. And I was like, oh, that's code word for pastor, right? We were, we were, we were missionaries, right? That's, we used code words. So it was code word for pastor, I thought. So I thought, but no. This was like a legit shepherd. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we had like... I mean, there was like 100 acres of land around this school. It was a beautiful, beautiful land all over the place. And I, it, it almost felt like a Coke commercial every time I was driving, we were driving into school because we were driving in, going through, hopping over these bumps, you know, driving through everything. And you'd see these shepherds. They're on, the, on, the, on horses, on these, on these huge horses, and they had like a Coke bottle like just dangling down every single day. And I'll never forget, one time it's like you see the Coke going up and then he kind of looks over and smiles at us and his one little tooth shines in the sun. And so anyways, he didn't actually, we didn't actually end up being driven by a shepherd. I was like the closest thing I had to being a part of a shepherd or even knowing what a shepherd was. I saw these shepherds every day. But here's the point. Shepherds lead, guide, and protect the sheep. Shepherds lead God and protect the sheep. And in the Bible, we see Jesus as the shepherd. He leads and he guides and he protects his people. And in the next few verses, we'll see the shepherding nature of God. Look at verse 6. 
It says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. When he says offer prayer here, he's saying offer a prayer of confession. Like it's a, it's a confessing prayer. When he says at a time when it may be found, we can, we can, we can see that he's communicating a sense of urgency here. Okay? Conf- essentially saying confess while you can. Don't wait. Right? Don't wait to confess your sins. Strike while the iron's hot. If God is speaking to your heart about a sin that you have not confessed, listen, there is a sweetness to the window of opportunity that we get to confess our sin. Essentially saying, let, let God shepherd us. Let, let God care for us. David is speaking here from personal experience. Don't sit, we can, let's not sit on our sin. Let's confess our sin. Because listen, Jesus went to the cross to relieve your burden. Let him, let him carry your burden believing the cross was sufficient. Let God shepherd and care for you. From what he's already said, he's urging people to confess their sin. And he knows that joy and happiness depend on it. Because look at verse 7. We see the fruit that comes out of confession. Okay, The fruit of being under God's shepherding care. After we confess, he says, You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. He's crying out to God. He's acknowledging to God of who he is. He says God is in a hiding place. He's an escape. He says God preserves him from trouble. He's a protector, so to speak. He says God surrounds him from shouts of deliverance. God redeems him, restores him, encourages him. And listen, this, this never gets old. Because God is shouting for you. God is shouting for us. He's cheering us on. He's believing in us. Scripture tells us that Jesus is pleading to God on behalf of us. Like he's pleading to God on our behalf. He's rooting for us. God is for us. When we no longer, when we no longer try to hide our sin, no longer try to cover up our own sin, but trust that Christ is covering our sin at the cross was sufficient. When we, tr- when we believe that, There's a burden that's being lifted off of us. Joy can be restored. We can worship the Lord in freedom, free of guilt and shame. That's that's where we can find joy and happiness, when we are living out of the burden that's being lifted. We can know that Christ has covered our sin, but yet there's still a responsibility to confess and acknowledge our sin because we want to hate it and grieve it, and our happiness essentially is tied to it. Verse 8, 8 through 10, it gives us a word of warning and instructions specifically in these regards about hiding our sin and, and, and knowing that our happiness is tied to it. Look at verse 8, 8 through 10. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. David here is pleading against a stubborn heart. A heart that ignores sin. A heart that thinks they've essentially done nothing wrong. It's a prideful heart. David is calling us essentially to be like a sheep that can be shepherded. He says, he says don't be like a mule. That's what he says. Don't be like a mule. 
Why? Because mules don't listen. They're not easily shepherded. Mules don't want to move. I, I watched some YouTube videos, again, of mules. They just stood there, so it wasn't, didn't get a lot done. Apparently, they're really good workhorses. Um, they don't want to move. They have to be bribed with bit and brittle, and that's what he says in the psalm. Now, I've never had a horse or a mule, but I've had a really stubborn dog. When, I was a, when we were a kid, I had this dog. It was a Dalmatian. I loved 101 Dalmatians. Like, that was my favorite movie as a kid. And so what did I do? We went out and got a Dalmatian. Terrible dogs. They do not listen. Don't be fooled by the cute little spots. They don't listen. I mean, she was very, very stubborn. And I, so to speak, wasn't the greatest trainer. Um... So we got to the point where the only way to get Nike, our beautiful, stubborn, very dirty dog, outside was to bribe Nike with a little piece of cheese. And then the only way to get Nike to come back in was to bribe her with a piece of cheese. And so we, if we didn't have any cheese, she wasn't going anywhere. So we always had cheese on, on hand. I mean, she refused. She didn't want to deal with it. Like... She, she was a very stubborn dog. She had to be bribed with food. And she didn't listen to her master. David's saying here, don't get to the point where you won't listen to your master. Where you must be bribed with treats. Don't become numb to the master's voice. Don't become numb to the voice of God. To submitting to the Lord. Jesus said, the sheep know their master's voice. Sheep know and respond to the voice of the Lord. A mule won't listen to their master. They need to be bribed. I pray that we would be sensitive to the Spirit of God and we would be sensitive to the voice of the Lord, that we would be under the shepherding care of God. God wants to shepherd us towards happiness and joy. God wants to shepherd us back to himself because every day, every day in the gospel, God calls us to himself. He says, come into my care and you'll find joy and rest. The question is, will we listen to him? Or will we be a stubborn mule? Look at verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God essentially shepherds us towards his steadfast love, his trust. He shepherds us towards his gladness, rejoicing. There's a sense of joyful shouting that's going on here. And at the end of the day, all of this is found in the gospel. The entire psalm is painting a picture of the gospel, which brings us to our last point. The gospel releases us for joy and gladness. The gospel releases us for joy and gladness. The gospel releases us to find happiness in our ultimate source. Because in the gospel, our sins are forgiven. In the gospel, we're released to be with God, where the spoiling of sin can't happen because both God and sin, they can't be together. Right? God and sin, they can't be found in the same bed together. But the great dilemma we face is that we know is that what we know today right now we know that sin still exists. We still we still experience the spoiled milk of the lucky charms, right? 
The world is still broken. Marriage is still hard. Doubt still creeps in. Anger still shows its face. And pride and stubbornness, they still exist. But just like David said, he said, Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And according to David, our happiness and our joy depend on forgiveness. And not a half-hearted forgiveness, but a forgiveness that's found in repentance. Repentance is... Because repentance and forgiveness, they go hand in hand. The dilemma of the gospel is that we have nothing to bring to God. We bring nothing but our sin and our shame. We bring nothing, right, but essentially spoiled milk. If we want forgiveness without repentance, we're forgetting that we brought nothing to the table but spoiled milk. We're slapping God in the face. We're believing that our spoiled milk was essentially good enough. Yet, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus meets us where we are, picks us up in the midst of our, of our sin. He cares for us. He shepherds us. He protects us. He corrects us. He directs us. But yet, in all of that, he still looks at us and he smiles at us. And he speaks to us. And he speaks verse 7 to us. He says, I know you're scared. Right? I, but you can hide here. You're safe here. That's what he says to us. He's saying when you're here, you can rejoice here. When you're in the shepherding care of God, we can rejoice. He's saying, I'm shouting for you. I'm cheering for you. I'm for you. In fact, I'm changing you. Right? When we hear that, when we believe that, when we believe that God is for us, that he is changing us, that he is speaking to us, we can rejoice. Because we can know that God is for our happiness. But it's for our rightly directed joy and happiness. Because happiness is found in Christ. Because, he, because it makes, when, we're, when we find our happiness in God, when we find our happiness in Christ, what does it do? It makes God great. It, ma- it magnifies Him because in the gospel, God provides our ultimate happiness. God wants us to worship Him. God wants others around us to worship Him. Now, I want to I close with this. We're praying for an awakening here in Tampa. Right? We're praying for an awakening in our city. We're praying for a movement of God. And you see this throughout the Bible, the entire Bible. God moves in mighty ways. But before God moves in the hearts of those who aren't His people... God always moves first in the hearts of those who are his people. We're praying for a revival in our city, but let's first pray for a revival in our own hearts. I'll say it this way. A revival in the city starts with a revival in our hearts. May we be stripped of pride and stubbornness and unbelief. May we not be a mule. Don't be a mule. He says in verse 9, but would we grieve our sin? And in great courage... We can believe the truth and greatness of the, of the gospel. We can, we can repent of our sin. We can turn away from our sin. We can run to God who is fighting for our joy and happiness. Right? But li- because listen, our, our, she- our shepherd, our God, he's watching over us. He's caring for us. May we listen to him and run to him today. Because our happiness depends on it. Let's pray. Father, you delight when we can be in your presence. Father, you 
you know us, you love us, you care for us. Father, may we be a people that are constantly running away from our sin and running to Christ and finding the joy that God provides in being in your presence. Father, work in our own hearts. May we be a people that encourage one another, that lift each other up, that speak truth to one another, that we would point each other to Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.